I know this is anticlimactic. You all come here and the teaching pastor's not here. That's exciting, isn't it? Yes. Well, um, you know, or may, you may not know, uh, um, that uh, Christy has been going down to Austin because her dad is um, um, on hospice, and, um, and that's just a matter of time before he, before he passes away. And uh, about midweek, they were going down and been mentioned that, okay, you know, we'll see. But Friday, he, um, he said that, you know, I think, uh, I think I really need to go ahead and stay here with, with Christy because just they don't, you know, it's been touch and go. I mean, it's been sort of up and down with her father. That's not changed. But the concern was, okay, well, you know, there's some concern that they're getting close. So please continue to pray for them um, as, and particularly, I think, Christy, as she um, navigates grieving, uh, pray for Ben as he tries to figure out how to help her do that, to walk with her through that. Um, those of you that, you know, have lost family members know, know what that is. So please uh, be praying for them. Um, I want to welcome you all. I'm glad, I'm glad to see you all. It's good to be, good to be here with everybody. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you have provided for us all things, all that we need for life and for faith. You've given us food and drink. You've given us shelter. You've given us cover. You've given us work. You've given us rest. You give family. You give us brothers and sisters in Christ, and all of this comes from your hand. Father, we come knowing that our bodies, though we call them ours, were neither made uh, by nor are sustained in any way by our own efforts, but are direct and special gifts from you. You, our creator and our sustainer. We live in this body by your providence. Our life to come is no different. Everything needed for sal the salvation of our souls has been provided for us by you. Christ's life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection to glory have all been accomplished that the merits of each step might be granted to us. Our life before you is Christ's life. Our suffering before you is Christ's suffering. Our death and our burial before you is Christ's death and burial. In our resurrection, we will rise only as an echo because Christ rose before us, bestowing on us resurrection life. All that we have in this world and the next is of you. And Lord, you command us to come praying continually for our needs and those of this world, showing our gratitude for these graces and acknowledging you as the only true source that supplies them. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters worldwide, your church universal, the bride of Christ, 
We pray that you would take her who is unremarkable without any outstanding characteristics to commend herself to you. We pray that you transform her into the very image of her Lord and Savior. May you beautify her in holiness and joy, turning her weeping into gladness and her sorrow into joy. We pray, Father, that you would fill her with love for her husband and a desire to serve and honor him in all things. And we pray that your church would grow and prosper and become a means and a mechanism for your working in this world. That we, your sinful people, would be so transformed that we would be fit vessels for kingdom use to the benefit of our brothers and sisters and to all around us to the honor and glory of our triune God. Lord, we pray, um, as has already been uh, prayed for, the earthly powers. Um, Lord, we know that you rule over them, yet you are familiar with our poverty. Lord, we come asking you to defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the needy, and support those who are going through trials. Father, would you make us willing to suffer with and for those in need. Father, we pray for this church, for Crosspoint, that you would draw us to Christ and make manifest in our lives all the bounty of his grace and blessing. How palely we reflect our master and how we desire that that likeness would grow in this church. Bend and shape us and prune us and water us Transform us from all worldly states into creatures that are fit for heaven. Pure, holy, filled with love and faith and hope. Lord, how we long for that final purging of the old man, the death of sin in our members. How we long to be completely in your will, conformed to it, dead to all that offends you and alive to Christ and his righteousness. Lord God, bring your kingdom quickly and complete that good work that you have begun in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Luke, that's what we'll be looking today. In Luke, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God. Now, you've noticed that what Ben has been talking about in Matthew, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. Luke is a bit different. He uses the term kingdom of God. Same idea, but Jesus is proclaiming this good news of the kingdom of God. And that good news, in particular, is enacted in the miracles that Jesus performs. What he does. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and particularly we left off Ben did last week on your kingdom come. He anticipated doing that again today. And what our passage is, is not a sort of departure from that. But in Luke, what we're going to see today is a window into what it looks like when Jesus brings that kingdom. We're going to see what that looks like. Or we could say it this way. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are going to see 
a glimpse of what that looks like perhaps now that we're praying for, that we're hoping to have happen. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at Luke 7, 11 through 17. Sorry, I think I, I think I told you wrong. I think it was, yeah, 11 through 17. Luke 7, 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea in all the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, again, I pray that you will take this word and that you will accomplish all that you intend by it, that you will keep your promise that you will not allow your word to return void, but you will do with it exactly what you intend. Lord, I pray that those things that don't matter that I say would be quickly forgotten. And what is useful for the building up of your people, the strengthening of your flock, I pray that that would remain. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, many of you know this about me, and I'll explain this as we go. So many of you know this about uh, us, my family, right? We're a multiracial family. Right? That's, we, got, we, got, we got several multiracial families. So what you may or may not know is that we were a multiracial family before we adopted our three youngest kids. And what you may not know, or you may know, is that we were a multiracial family before we had kids. Right? So this, is, this last two weeks has been personal to me and relevant to what... Uh, I'll talk about in Luke uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, don't worry, this is not a political ad or announcement. This is a personal story about why I needed to hear what Luke has to say. So, I am American Indian. 
It's one thing. Right? And I get, okay, yeah, you're all lots of races. I, I understand that. We all are. I get it. So, I'm American Indian. That's the way I grew up, right? We would go down to the powwow every year. That's about as close as I got to that culture, my family that was in Alabama, right? Um, we lived in Houston. So I had some distance from that. What was interesting is um, I, my friends in, when I was growing up, my friends who were black, they would, they would, they would, do, this, they would do this thing. They would, say, they would ask me immediately, who's black, your mom or your dad? And I would say, well, I'm Indian. Now, I learned the hard way <laughs> that you didn't tell any of my cousins, you know, are you sure we're not black? That was a no, no. And here's why, right? This is where it gets real complicated, right? Because my, the tribe that I belong to in Alabama is state recognized, it's not federally recognized. They tried to get federally recognized. You know why they couldn't get federally recognized? Grandmother, Negro. It's funny, there's a book, the sociologist wrote this book because they were trying to help get my tribe recognized federally. It's called The Wind Blows Red. It's weird to see that. She called it Extinction by Redesignation. And that helped me to understand why there was so much resistance and antipathy to considering anything else. But here I was, a kid in Houston. So about early 2000s, I started trying to, okay, well, I'm going to figure this, I'm going to do some more research and figure this out. Felt like I sort of came to some conclusions, right? And, you know, and then sort of, um, you know, Ancestry.com is real helpful, you know. And 23andMe is real helpful, you know. I'm waiting for them to call me to do a commercial for them. Because it really could. So what, several years ago, what I came to be comfortable with, just after sort of really trying to dig into this, is, I think it was, about, I think it was probably about 13 years ago, maybe, something like that, that I started to put on applications American Indian and black. Right. Now, the difficulty is that when we have times like these in the last two weeks, and this is sort of my own struggle, is I don't always know how to feel. What am I supposed to think? Where, where do I fit? I add to that some of the other confusion. Like, so, I will say this, and this is just my experience. I've been stopped after pulling out of my driveway 
because we had robberies in the neighborhood. It happened. I don't, I don't have any ill will towards the policeman. He's a really nice guy. I mean, I don't think he was, you know. Last year in March, I had somebody, and I don't know what prompted this, but I had somebody <coughs> come to me in sort of a in sort of a in sort of a posture of contrition, seeking forgiveness for things that they had thought and said about me and my family. Now that one was personal. So when these issues come up, there's just this struggle that I have. Because I don't know where I fit. It's not the end all or be, you know. But it's real. How do I fit into this? How am I supposed to feel about it? How am I allowed to feel about it? And I even take a risk telling you this. Right? I mean, it's just, it is. It's a risk. I risk being labeled. Oh, you're even talking about race. I risk being put in that category. And this is not so much about how you feel about me as much as moments, times like this bring up in me all over again all of those questions and uncertainties. And I find myself like sort of, you know, trying to find some place to grab hold of. Because I don't want to be used. I don't want to be, I don't want to be co-opted by somebody's ideology or politics. What do I do? Where do I go? What do I... In the wake of that uncertainty about how I, how I feel, about not knowing what to do, about not knowing what I should do, about not knowing where I fit, I recognize that the safest place for me to look is Christ. Christ and the kingdom that he brings does not preclude or simply wash away all of this, but it does stand over it. Right? I mean, I don't care where you're coming from. At some point, I mean, if you're a believer, you and I have got to be able to step back and go, okay, I see this and I see this, and... I belong to Jesus. I belong to that kingdom. And that kingdom, which this doesn't always become part of the conversation, but that kingdom critiques all of us. That kingdom challenges all of us. Everybody. 
that kingdom creates us anew. And so what I'm left looking for is, what does Jesus do when he wades into this? When he brings his kingdom? How do we follow Christ in living and proclaiming this kingdom that we're a part of? I think we see that in Luke 7, 11 through 17. And there's, here's, so here's some words if you're, if you're like sort of an, this is the best you're going to get in an outline right now this time, right? But this is simple, right? See, S-E-E, compassion, comfort, help, and focus. That's what we're going to see. See, compassion, comfort, help, and focus. And what this is, we're doing a study with the young adults on Wednesday night, and it's called the person of Jesus. And so we have done several of these, and with a short time I decided I'm going to, I would rework. It's like an inductive study where I do a lot of questions and all that stuff. And so I decided we'd rework some of that to try to bring it to you in a sermon. So the first thing that we see is that Christ sees. That's, the, that's one of the first things that we see him doing here. In Luke 7, 13, just the first part, it says, And when the Lord saw her. Remember what's going on here is you've got this funeral procession that is coming from Nain, right? And Jesus and his folks, his crew, they're coming from, I think, Capernaum. Now, what stands out about this, what's interesting about this is, and, you, and you, it's really easy to miss this, is that we're not talking about, you know, there's 10 or 20 people with her and 10 or 20 people with him. Did you notice what words used? Look again at chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd was with him. Right, that phrase, a great crowd, is used... At the feeding of the 5,000, it's used when there's just, a, I think it's like a 1,000, a couple thousand. If you flip back, or you don't do this, but just if you look back at Luke 6, 17, sort of at the, at the head of this, where right before Jesus is, or when Jesus is preaching what they call the Sermon on the Plain, but the Sermon on the Mount there. In 6, 17, it says, He came down from there with them and stood on, on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and, and, and Sidon. Now that's Luke 6. And we still have a great crowd. So 
Here's the picture. You've got Jesus walking with potentially a thousand folks. And do you notice what it says about the woman? As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and, cons- and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. A considerable crowd. Now, you know, Paul Miller, the guy that was, you know, kind of writing this study, one of the things he pointed out was that, you know, the, the census then was like three or four hundred in name. And at a, at a funeral, everybody's supposed to come. So you've got upwards of over a couple of hundred folks. And in this, you've got the professional mourners, right? I mean, literally, the professional mourners that come, that's their job, to mourn. And at the head of this, you've got the women. This woman being one of them, the key one. So when it says, and when the Lord saw her, that is significant. We could add to that that, remember Luke, he's taking witnesses here. That's how he's compiling this thing. So what that means is that somebody in the crowd of lots of people somehow was able to determine that Jesus was looking at her. You have to ask, okay, so how do you have to be looking at somebody in a large crowd to know that that person is looking? Well, here, how about this? Y'all say, ready? Ready? Who am I looking at? Who am, I, who am I staring at? Anybody know? Huh? Yes, I'm staring at Robert. Robert, did you know I was staring at you? He's like, no, I didn't ever get it. I'm trying to avoid you, man. Right? That's intense. And this person realizes Jesus is staring at her. Now, he could have been staring. There's like lots of people, professional mourners, wailing and crying. you got all the other party in the funeral procession. But it's clear that Jesus is staring at her. He sees her question is, what does Jesus see when he sees her? We can ask this. What does Jesus see when he sees you? You look at the rest of verse 13 and we see This is the second word, compassion. It says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, if you didn't know, compassion is sort of like an inside thing. 
So now we got a witness that doesn't just know that Jesus sees her. He knows that he has compassion on her. What does compassion look like? Well, it has a look. Just like anger. Just like sadness. Just like fear. Compassion has a look. Compassion has a posture. Compassion has a feel. Do you know what it's like to have compassion shown to you? I mean, sometimes we like it, right? Sometimes we like receiving compassion, but not everybody does. I mean, for some of you, even in a crowd this size, right, compassion is not comfortable. Right? Maybe because of why we have compassion on people. Why Jesus had compassion on this woman. What was it that he saw that provoked compassion. Well, here are some ideas. He saw need. He saw distress. He saw hurt. He saw pain. Those are the things that tend to provoke compassion in us for another. I'll say this again. Some of us don't like to see that. So not only are there some of us, we don't, we don't like to receive compassion. It's uncomfortable. Some of us don't like to give it because, not because we don't like people, but because it's so hard to look at need and hurt and pain, suffering. We want to shut it off. Jesus doesn't. Jesus sees it. And he responds to it. What was the need, distress, the hurt, the pain that he saw? Well, one, she's a widow. You know where that puts her. That already puts her in a category of suffering. That already puts her in a, a, a category of risk. I mean, risk for survival, risk for... Now, the good thing is that she had a son, an only son. Right? That, that usually is the sort of the next buffer, the next line. What Jesus saw is that she doesn't have that anymore. And you, and if, okay, so when you think about that, think Ruth. Think Ruth. Right, you remember what Ruth called herself? Bitter. God has dealt bitterly with me. 
like Ruth, this woman, she was alone. She was without protection. There's this sort of other Hebrew category. Something Miller points out. There's this other Hebrew category, right? We got life. Either you're alive or you're dead. But you got this other Hebrew category of the living dead or living death. That's where she was. She was walking there alone, no protection. Because that family was it. That's why Ruth was so desperate. Or excuse me, Naomi was so desperate. And so unusual that Ruth would stick with her. Think that. That just is more thing maybe familiar for some of you. And here's what's interesting, and kind of the mind-blowing thing, and I, don't, I, I still don't know what to do with this. It's just the third word. So Jesus sees, he shows compassion, and then he comforts. Notice how he comforts. I'll read this again. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Now, when, when Jesus says something and you go, I don't know, Jesus. That's like, insert question for you. That opens up something in you. Jesus says, do not weep. Why does he tell her not to weep? She's got every reason to weep. But that's the twist here. Jesus steps into this situation that everybody knows. Death. Pain. Suffering. And he can say something that is more real than any of that. Do not weep. Jesus steps into it. And his presence is more real, if we could say it that way, is more real than the death that is there. Jesus' words, do not weep, alert us to what his presence means. That he's this living hope. He's the living hope that in that moment meets living death. This woman in the midst of living death has just met life. Passion, he comforts her, though she may not be comforted yet, he comforts her, and then forth he helps. 7.14 Verse 714, after he says, do not weep, it says, and then he came up. And this is, this is where we need to pay attention. This is what I love, I love about Paul Miller, you know, the guy that does this, this, this person of Jesus stuff. 
This reminder that paying attention to what Jesus does in the flesh is really important because it tells us something about who he is. Which, after all, is the reason that he is in the flesh. He came up. And this is something that, you know, Jesus is like sometimes one of those people that you don't want to hang around. Because he just gets you into all kinds of stuff. Right? Before you know it, you hang around Jesus long, you're talking to people you don't want to talk to. I'm not playing, really. Right? You're doing things like having to do stuff that is like, I got other things I could be, be doing, Jesus. Right? I got some alien shows I could be watching right now. I mean, you got to be loving people. You got to be caring for people. Yeah, this is exhausting. You know that, right? I mean, is it? Okay, please, am I the only one? I don't want to be up here, like, professing how much I don't want to love people to a bunch of people. No, we just love people. We love loving people. I don't know what's wrong with you, Greg. We love people. Well, I mean, if you're walking with Jesus, you're stuck. Because that's what you're going to be doing. That's the thing about Jesus. You see this, you see him do this over and over again. Is, you know, if you're, if you're pain and suffering averse, man, <laughs> you've got a long road to hoe because that's what Jesus does. You see this over and over again. Pain, Jesus, boom, steps into it. Walks right into it. And if you're walking with him, that's where you're going. And if you're hesitant, he's going to stand and wait for you to ask, what are we doing? That's what Jesus does. He moves right into the source of pain and suffering. And it is for our sake that he has done that. If that's not the kind of Lord that he is, you and I wouldn't be here right now. You're here because that's what he does. He doesn't just move into it, then he does something there. In 14... He came up and touched the buyer. I think that's how you pronounce it. And everybody stood still. Now, what's that? that's funny because Jesus is coming with his crowd and it's sort of what happens when a funeral comes through like on the highway. Everybody stops, right? That funeral procession was going. And Jesus just wades out into it and touches the casket. Yeah, that's a problem, right? Because touching that potentially made you, well, it made you unclean. 
which is, leads to sort of a larger thing. I've said this before, but before Jesus came, death spreads. Darkness spreads. All of this sort of sacrifices, the camp in Israel, all of that was like this little place of light that held off the darkness and the death. But it was always a potential danger. That's why, you know, you got all these sort of boundary-breaking things that we got to deal with, you know, bugs and, you know, uh, lizards and all that stuff. You had to clean stuff and all that because death was constantly seeping in. And what's fascinating about Jesus is when he steps in the picture, it rolls back. Darkness disperses and death dies. And this is why I said earlier that Jesus is more real than death. He is the realest of the real. And then we see proof of this. Look at Luke 7, the last part of 14 into 15. He came up, touched the buyer, the barrister still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus speaks the word and life appears. Here, the life that Jesus gives, right? raising somebody from the dead, it's a pointer. Because remember, Jesus is walking around. He hasn't died and rose from the dead yet. So what you see in this picture, right, this miracle, you see, ooh, this is the, he has life in him. That's a picture of what's coming. This eternal life. And that's not just forever and ever life. That is life in the presence of God. These little miracles are pointers to that reality. That's what he has. That's what he brings. Life. They give us clues to what's coming and who he is. So he sees, he has compassion, he comforts, and then he helps. And then the last thing is focus. It's focus. And it's just a little word, right? I mean, you thought we'd think that that's enough. Right? We could say, he said... Uh, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and spoke again. And then verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet is... But that's not where it goes at first. Oops, sorry. We don't jump from, he raises the guy, to everybody going, wow, this is a prophet. There's that little phrase, or that little sentence, right after... He raises this guy from the dead, and right before, everybody goes, wow. That is a significant little phrase. 
says, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. He didn't just raise, he brought him back to his mother. It's this interesting sort of dynamic. You see this widow, right? Widow, no son, dead son. Son raised to life. Widow receives her son back. It's interesting. We could say it this way too. That in raising her son, giving the son this physical life, he restores life to her as well. He brings her out of this living death. Fascinating thing that you see about Jesus here. Something that he manages to do is for people to matter. He gets the glory. He is glorified, yes. Right? I mean, we could all we could say this is a pointer to him. Right? And yet, in the gospels, we constantly see constantly see Jesus attending to people, real people. Focused on these people. They're not projects. They're not objects. They're not like the previews to the movie. They matter. He loves them. Where does this lead? This leads to Luke 16. The first part of 16 says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. So the people see it. They see, now here's what they've seen. Right? They have seen Jesus see. They've seen Jesus show compassion. They've seen Jesus help or comfort. And they've seen Jesus help. They've seen all of this right before their eyes. And they see who he is. Prophet. Now, here's what's interesting, and this is both the the uh, story of the centurion that just happened just before this in chapter seven, one through ten, and this story. Those two together, they have a real close resemblance. In fact, you can start to see where Luke is weaving together these resonances of the stories of Elijah and Elisha. It's not an accident that just a few miles from where this took place is where Elisha came across a widow who was waiting to die with her son. 
And then the son did die. And Elisha raised him up. The thing about that was that God's voice wasn't being heard very much at the time in Israel. Here you have this little moment where God speaks. What we're seeing here in this story, the people are recognizing God is speaking. He's moving. And that's why the next phrase is so important. These people, they quake. Fear, right? They quake. I'm sure I would quake if somebody raised somebody from the dead. They, they revere him. They adore God. And the other thing that they say is verse 16, the last part, and God has visited his people. This is what they recognize in Jesus. This is what they recognize in the prophet. God has visited his people. That doesn't mean that he dropped by to have a Coke. That doesn't mean that he dropped by to have a little chit-chat, to visit on the porch. Visit means that he comes to save and deliver. Luke said this. I think that this is Mary's words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. They're talking about God's redemptive work. God's restorative work. He has shown up to do it. It also means, another way of saying this, is he comes to make provision, to nurture. Here's the way that Hebrews 2.6 uses it. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. That's the word for visit. These people fear God. They revere. They quake. They adore him. Because they know that what they've seen in this is God coming near. To restore. God coming near to care. It is not, it's not narcissistic or self-centered to recognize that God cares for you. That's what you're supposed to see in Christ. The living God cares for you. That's what you've experienced. If you have come to Christ. What coming to his kingdom. What knowing him means. Is that he sees you. That he has compassion for you. And you need it. 
that he comforts you. That he helps you. The question is, do you see him? Do you adore him for this? Are you overwhelmed by the beauty of what he does to you and for you? The end game of all this in this seeing and experiencing this compassion, the comfort, the help, is that you've tasted this kingdom. You're transformed by this kingdom. This is the kingdom to which you belong. And so we could ask this. Not just, are you coming to him? That's the question I've got to ask. That's where I'm finding rest as I wrestle with something significant for me in all that's going on. Maybe the question for you is, in all that's going on, are people going to see this kingdom in you? Are people going to see this Savior in what you do? Are they going to say, there is a prophet that gives life? Are they going to say, wow, the living God really has come? Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for what you have given to us in your Son, the salvation that you have brought. I pray for us as a people that Lord Jesus, that we will see you that you will open our eyes to help us to see all that you have given, all that you have done. That you will help us to taste what it means to be a part of this kingdom that you've brought. And I pray that you will transform us into a people that image you. Make us a people that sees. Make us a people that has compassion. Make us a people that comforts. Make us a people that helps. Lord, I pray that you would do all that needs to be done in all of us so that we can be critiqued and challenged 
by your kingdom. Whatever that means, would you do it in us? Amen. Our supper, now let me give you some more, some technical instructions. Okay, so you'll notice that on, on your supper, um, there's the two openings. Okay, there's like the, there's like the, I feel so silly. They're like the clear plastic opening at the top. You'll want to pull that off first because if you don't, then it gets real hard. If you just pull off the like little pink one to the liquid, then you got to try to like open this without spilling the stuff. So, so you can just take, yeah, so just take that out and then open your drink thing. Don't make the mistake that I did or, yeah, I did. Oh dear, hang on. All right. So our Lord's Supper, it comes from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. Take and drink.